listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Muzzleloaders Podcast. Uh, I actually was able to take a trip. Logan Holtz invited me out to the Burris HQ uh, to film some videos about muzzleloading, and uh, really excited to be out here uh, with Logan and the whole Burris team. And we had a lot of fun today out at the range. We were able to get a lot of fun videos shot. We were able to shoot. Uh, we actually were able to ring some steel at 750 yards with the Eliminator 4 on the uh, Paramount HTR. So that was a lot of fun. If you guys want to check that out, go to Burris's page and uh, you can see all those videos there. Um, not should not, be up soon. not just in seven, not just 750 yards. Yes, but 750 yards, and I'm not kidding you. A 20 mile an hour crosswind. Oh yeah, and it was. It was not even, not even like, that's not even an exaggeration. It was literally 20 miles an hour. It was gusting up to 28. Yeah. It was insane. It was incredible. And it was, it was something like when that wind fired up, I was like, I don't know if we're going to be able to hit this shot. Like 750 yards seems kind of aggressive. But I was like, you know what? I'm nothing (laughs) if not optimistic. So we're going to try and make it happen. And you know what? We did. And honestly, if we hadn't misjudged the wind, we would hit it first try. That's Uh, right. We hit it second shot. First shot missed. Half a target left. Yep. And you were holding how many mils? Do you remember? I was holding three and a half mils. Yep. Um, and I think it was because we we thought the wind was like in the ten to fifteen range, and it was actually in the twenty to twenty five range. Which, if we would have so. looked at our flag downrange a little closer, we would have known based on the fact <laughs> that it was completely sideways. Yes, but it was by the end of the day. You know, we yeah. were we were pretty much like fried by the end of yeah. that day. So. And then sure enough, we did pull out the Kestrel to yeah. confirm we're like, well, what was the wind actually at? It was yeah. a, it was 20 gusting to 28. Yeah. It was incredible. It was incredible. A lot of fun out here. Um, and you know, Logan, you and I were talking at dinner about Burris and how, um, both of us think that, you know, Burris is one of the most underrated scope brands out there. I think glass quality features, um, Burris is one of the best. And so before we get too far into that though, I do want to hear a little bit of your story, um, how long you've been with Burris, what you do there, and kind of what your job looks like on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so I started with uh, Burris Optics about five years ago. I came over to Burris from Cabela's, actually, uh, fresh out of school at the University of Wisconsin. I moved out west to Sydney, Nebraska with my now wife at the time. Nice. She was a girlfriend and a good one that would commit to moving to Sydney, Nebraska with yeah. me, right? Um, but yeah, I worked at Cabela's as a data scientist and then I worked on their digital marketing team down in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. stayed there throughout the whole, you know, Bass Pro merger, got to see all that happen. So it was very, very interesting time oh, yeah. to be alive. <laughs> and, the, the, uh, the Bass Pro monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was definitely, I was there for, for all that. Uh, and then just decided it was not a place that I wanted to be anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and at, at the time I just lucked out. I had the marketing director from Burris reach out to me and say, Hey, do you want to grab a couple beers and, and talk about what we do? We started talking about what we do. And the next morning I had a job offer randomly pop up <laughs> out of nowhere. And I started off to kind of come over to Burris and start up their digital properties, you know, fix up their website, start up their social media, start up their YouTube, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, now five years later, I'm the marketing director. I oversee a team of four people. Um, yeah, it's great. We're we're rocking and rolling, doing all kinds of exciting things like these content projects that we've been shooting for the last two days. So, oh yeah, and I mean just the growth that, um, you know, you said five years ago your social media and everything was pretty much non-existent, mm-hmm. and you know now now I look at your Instagram, you guys have eighty one thousand followers, you know, yeah. and uh, the presence you guys have been able to uh, create over such a short period of time is really really incredible. Yeah, and that's not to anybody's fault except for the product. 
it's true. It's a, what they say is a marketer's dream is a good product, right? And yeah. That was the biggest thing that I considered before taking the job here is, hey, what, what kind of products does Burris have? What kind of warranty do they have? What kind of people work there? And it's an incredible company with incredible products and the best warranty that exists. Um, you know, a lot of people have warranties, but the best thing about ours is you'll never have to use it. Yeah. And that's, that's what a good warranty looks like. For sure. You know, it's yeah. one that's there, but you'll never have to use. And, uh, yeah. So, so throughout starting up the social media here and all the digital assets, we've kindly kind of started to slowly ramp up our marketing. Something that we talked about earlier, something that Burris never really did at all. We mm -hmm. didn't do sales. We didn't do marketing. We just built really good products. Yeah. Um, and that should always be step one. It, for us, it took a long time to get into the marketing game, mm -hmm. uh, like 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, just a little, just a little yeah, bit of time. <laughs> yeah. So 1971 is when Burris started and we've been building really good products ever since. Um, truly industry leading products, products that nobody else has, especially when it comes to the technical products, like, you know, the range finding bow sights, the range finding rifle scopes, which we are playing with mm -hmm. today, the range finding crossbow scopes and now thermal and all this cool stuff we have that not a lot of other optics companies do have. And, uh, yeah, we just never really did a good job at talking about it. Yeah. We spent all of our resources on building these products that were just truly cutting edge I mean, I could go down the list of first that Burris did, right? Your first Plex reticle with holdovers, your first scope with a full field of view, mm. your first scope to ever have steel on steel uh, internal, you know, adjustments, which gives you the dependable trackability that we're known for. Mm -hmm. And all these things that nobody ever knew about <laughs> because yeah. we were just yeah, yeah. doing them behind closed doors and not talking about it. Mm -hmm. And now we finally have the opportunity to kind of talk about it a little bit and people are noticing, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... Um... I'm really excited about where, not just muzzleloading, because that's the space that we're in that I'm really passionate about, but um, where the outdoor industry as a whole is going, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that uh, hunting is, is under attack in some ways, but um, I think in a lot of ways, people are really rediscovering a passion for the outdoors, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, brands like Burris are really doing a lot to spur that on, and uh, I think that can really only do nothing but good for you know, our society and for humans in general is, you know, to get back in touch with your roots of hunting and spending time in the outdoors, shooting, you know, those kinds of things. Um, they're just really restorative activities, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people get caught up in the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle, and it's good to step out and take a deep breath in the fresh air yeah. and look out over the mountainscape, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, especially since COVID, I think especially that's kind of exponentiated this people are getting cooped up and they're realizing that people aren't meant to be cooped up. Yeah. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. we saw hunting licenses sales up over a million this last year, mm -hmm. firearm sales way, way up. And that just, yeah. When people get cooped up, they start to go crazy and they need, they need some fresh air. And yeah. you know, I think the biggest opportunity for us in the outdoor space to kind of help bring people in is, is the idea behind, you know, how healthy the wild game is for you, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I live just outside of Boulder, Colorado, which is one of the hippie centers of the world. <laughs> and they always talk about their, their buzzwords around food, right? Food, right? You're no GMO, free mm. range, organic. Yeah. And, and wild game is all of those things. Absolutely. It is as raw and as organic and natural as it gets. Yeah. And a lot of people are showing interest in hunting to obtain that natural, non-GMO, free range, wild you know, meat. Absolutely. And that's the right reason to get into hunting. Yeah. It truthfully is. That's why I started hunting, you know, mm -hmm. as a subsistence lifestyle that I grew up in. And it's, you know, it's, it's the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, um, 
you know, I, I myself, like I eat meat. I'm, but I also see the point of like, uh, you know, factory farming and things like that, where you have just these mass produced, uh, you know, meat essentially. And it's like, I, I think, you know, especially because I grew up in, a, I, I'm in a rural community. I'm in LaGrande, you know, uh, Oregon and a lot of ranching. And I think there is huge benefit in, you know, advocating for responsibly sourced meat, whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, beef or whatever. But when it comes down to hunting, I mean, that's about as reliably sourced as you can get. I mean, um, and it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. It's a huge amount of work, but it's so rewarding. Like, um, there's not a lot of whitetail in my area, but there's, there's getting to be more. And I shot a whitetail this year and that is not only like the cleanest meat that you can have, but it's mm-hmm. some of the most tender, juicy, delicious meat that, um, that you can find. I mean, it's not meat that you're going to find in the grocery store. That's for sure. Um, no doubt. And so it's, uh, that's definitely something I always, re- you know, reinforced when people are talking about getting into hunting is like, you know, the meat people and you know, uh, People say, I can't believe you eat deer. Like, that seems gross because they, they have the magic, like, oh, meat comes from a cow. But deer and elk meat is just the most delicious meat. It's where it started. Yeah. I mean, think about how humans fed themselves for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Beef is great. It's one of the best red meats there is, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're sitting here in Greeley, Colorado right now doing this podcast, and this is one of the number one beef production yeah. areas in the entire country. And we also just got so, done eating a beef steak. We did so. a really good one. <laughs> yeah, really yeah, good. <laughs> no doubt. Um, so yeah, and you know, to go back on what you said earlier, it, truthfully, if you look at it, hunting is not 100% sustainable for mm-hmm. everybody in the country. Yeah. If everybody hunted for wild game meat, it would be a disaster. Oh, so for there sure, is for a sure. pla- there is a place for commercial farming. There's yeah, yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, when it comes down to it, I mean, I, I love beef. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. if you ask me, hey, you know what? You're about to die. What's going to be your last meal? Mm. I mean, antelope. Really? Oh, yeah. Antelope, huh? Yep, for sure. Yeah, for Favorite sure. wild game meat I've had thus far. Now, I haven't had the fancy, you know, Axis deer. I've heard that yeah. that's really good. Yeah. But from what I've eaten so far, which is almost every big game animal in North America, mm-hmm. antelope is, man, I love it. Yeah. Just naturally sweet, hmm. super lean. See, for me, that's whitetail. Like, I, I do love whitetail. I could not, you know, because I grew up eating mule deer, which mule deer is fine. Yeah. Um, little, but, little sagey, yeah. you know, a little bit of you are what you eat situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, when you eat a white tail, it is like the most delicious. I mean, for me, white tail is even better than elk. And I would put elk almost at the very top, you know, elk is very good. I would also, I'm with you. I would put white tail above elk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's impressive because I grew up literally only eating white tail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, Cause I grew up, in, I grew up in Wisconsin. So yeah, that's like how I mentioned that, you know, we subsistence hunted to, to eat. As, as a kid, and mm-hmm. I can't even tell you how many whitetail I've eaten through in my, in yeah. my life because that's what yeah. I grew up on. Yeah. So you think I would have gotten sick of it, but mm-hmm. I, I never did. I, you can't. I you can't get sick it. of something that's so yeah. delicious. Yeah. And especially when, like, by me, they're eating corn and soybeans and, I mean, just lush green grass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, they're as, it's as good as it gets, man. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Well, I kind of want to talk about, you know, muzzleloader hunting, too. Uh, because you have a ton of experience muzzleloader hunting and, um, it's really big, uh, in Colorado. That's one of, you know, our biggest States. And, uh, it's just kind of also what we were talking about earlier about slowing down. And I think that uh, getting out in the outdoors is slowing down by definition, but muzzleloading I think is a, is a totally another level. And it's probably my favorite part about it is that, you know, we wake up in the morning, we check our phones, you know, especially us in marketing. It's like, okay, what's going on? What's happening? What do I need to be paying attention to? 
and, you know, going out to muzzle loading where you can't reload, you know, it's not even like a bolt action. Like it takes, it's probably, you know, five, six times as long to reload a muzzle loader. You, you have know? one it's, shot. Yeah. It's just so, <laughs> it's so slow, you know, yeah. and it's, it's, it's a totally different pace. And so, um, kind of, let's talk about your background a little bit with muzzle loading and some of the hunts you've gone on and things like that. Yeah. So I didn't really get into muzzle loading until I, I moved out West. So it was about almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into it again, working at Cabela's. I had a, a colleague I've always wanted to do it. Just didn't have anybody again, growing up subsistence hunting, like you take your best weapon into the field because mm-hmm. you're going to get food. Yeah. Like yeah. you're not messing around with bows and bow and arrow was viewed. <laughs> bow and arrow muzzleloader was viewed as like, you know, like, why would you do that? You're, you're going for the challenge. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, like you're one of those guys. We, they, well, yeah. They weren't <laughs> like how I grew up. We weren't trying to make it a challenge. We were trying yeah. to go put food on the table. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I just never got into it, but I, you know, as I progressed in my hunting career, I guess you could call it, uh, when I started working for Cabela's, I was starting to get interested in this stuff. And one of my coworkers showed me how to shoot and load a muzzle loader, mm. and I was hooked. Yeah. Literally from the first time I pulled the trigger and I watched that big smoke plume come out the end of the barrel. Oh yeah. And then I had to take, you know, like you said, <laughs> it takes forever, 30 yeah. seconds at least, yeah. like more like a minute to reload the thing. I was like, mm. this is so cool. And then, yeah, I started started hunting all kinds of stuff. And at this point, I mean, I've taken pretty much all the main big game species in North America with a muzzleloader. Um, you mentioned Colorado is a big muzzleloader state. And, and part of the reason for that is, and I don't tell a lot of people this because I think it's a really well-hidden secret, but the muzzleloader season in Colorado for elk is your best chance of killing an elk. Mm-hmm. That is undeniable. Yeah. It is during the absolute peak of the rut. The only other people out there are archers. Mm-hmm. And the bulls are going crazy. Yeah. And the best thing with the muzzleloader over a bow is you don't have to draw. You don't have that extra movement of having to hit the back wall. Hmm. So you're, yeah. you're up there, For you're sure. ready to go. And Well, you have I mean, a little bit of extra range, too. I mean, yeah. with open sights, even with open sights, like the Williams Precision. Yep, the global. With global practice, heat. yeah, you can, I mean, 175 is attainable with that sight. To- you know? Totally from an accuracy perspective. Uh, I would just say, in, in my experience, which I have now killed three bull elk with a muzzleloader, and a few with a bow as well, and, and a rifle. So I've mm. shot them with all the weapons, right? Um, muzzle loaders are can be very accurate at distance. Elk are so tough. Ah, that's true. They that's true. are so tough. Mm. And even with a perfectly placed shot, I personally would never shoot an elk beyond 75 yards hmm. with, with, a, with a 50 caliber muzzle loader. With And granted, we're super restricted in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. We don't get to use the sabreted bullets that achieve higher velocities. Mm-hmm. We don't get to use, you know, pelletized powder. We don't get to use a scope. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and my archery hunt, like how I got into elk hunting was archery anyways. So I'm mm-hmm. used to calling them in super close. Yeah. Like I, I'm more likely to get a frontal at 10 yards mm-hmm. than I am, you know, anything else. So... For me, the biggest thing is just, you know, taking the time to wait for them to turn broadside or quartering away and, and making that play shot. But out of the three elk I've shot with a muzzleloader, I've never shot one further than 50 yards. Yeah. And I yeah. just would never have to because I'm always calling them in. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of, I, honestly, I think every single shot, whether it was with a rifle or a muzzleloader or whatever, I'm pretty sure every shot I've ever made was under 150 yards for sure. Mm-hmm. Most of them right around 100 Mm-hmm. And some of them, you know, like my deer I shot this year was, was 20 yards away. And yeah. so I was like, you know, most of the time, especially hunting in forested areas, yep. like you hunt in Colorado, like yep. I hunt in Oregon, 
you're taking shots that are pretty close. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And the, the reason and I, that's the fun with elk. Oh like, that yeah. Is, I mean, there's nothing like. Why, why like do it. you hunt elk? It's the vocals, man. It's yeah. the back and it's forth. The game. It's yeah. the game. That's that's the game. The game is not making the shot. Yeah. The game yeah. is moving the chess pieces and making the sounds to put them in your lap. Exactly. Yeah. And man, it, again in Colorado, I don't want to say this too much. Don't tell your friends, but <laughs> man, like you could not pick a better time. Smack dab, pretty much always muzzleloader season falls on the fall equinox, mm-hmm. which is when the elk are going to be at their absolute peak run. Like that 22, 24 of September. Third week of September. Oh, man. Dude. I'm talking eyes rolled in the back of the head, screaming their face off, not yeah. knowing what's going on. Yeah. And, man, first first muzzleloader bull I ever killed, I killed at 15 feet, coming into a challenge bugle. That thing was cu- – he was possessed. <laughs> I straight – I shot him in self-defense. I have goosebumps just even talking about it. He was coming into a challenge bugle. All I heard was just lip ball, just screaming, yeah. crashing, coming through the branches. And then he just popped out of the trees in front of me at 15 yards on a dead run. Man. My muzzleloader was already up. At that time, I was just shooting fiber optic uh, yeah. iron sights. Yeah. Smoke cloud, thump, 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 rolled down the hill. Like, yeah. I'm just shaking like a maraca oh, dude, at yeah. this point. And, like, that's what it's about. Yeah, for like, sure. For sure. You would never get that experience in rifle season. There's yeah. no oh, way. Exactly. There's yeah. no way you're going to find a bull that turned up. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of, you know, I, the archery season. So I've archery hunted and been unsuccessful. It's tough. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Last year I had, the, I was able to get, uh, I had a six point at, at 50 yards. Um, but, you know, as you know, with archery season, you could do nine things right. But if one thing goes wrong, you're not getting that. You're not getting it down. And no. so it was like, you know, I didn't have quite the shot I wanted to take uh, on that bull. But just being able to play that game, you know, being able to bugle back and forth, being able to get that close to an animal that is that size is oh, incredible. Huge. You know, and just there's nothing more exciting. Like, because I rifle hunted all growing up, and um, you know, when you're rifle hunting, you're pretty much spot and stock. You see the elk, you're finding a way to make a play on them, and you're taking the shot at you know 400 yards or whatever. But with archery and with muzzleloader um you're getting close you know like you're and it's it's like i could i could go a whole archery season and not kill an elk and have more action than i would going a whole season and killing an elk with rifle you know because you're gonna get you're gonna play the game even Mm -hmm. if you don't kill anything you're gonna go back and forth you're gonna chase them down the hill they're gonna chase you back up you know it's like that's the fun of it. It's chess, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about, like, your your evolution as a hunter, if, if you will, and, like, how you kind of progress. You know, you mentioned earlier a lot of times muzzleloading is kind of that next step for people to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, once you even then get to the next level, you just kind of realize it's more about the experience. Yeah. And filling the tag becomes more of a bummer. Yeah. It's exciting yeah to harvest something no mm-hmm. doubt but every single time i fill a tag it's always like Dang, oh man i have to wait <laughs> now I, <laughs> you now, can't hunt it for a while yeah like now it's over like uh-huh. that's it and then you just begin to realize like all right you almost start to purposefully make it hard on yourself yeah you know and that's like what i did this year we were talking about that i, I took out a muzzleloader pistol mm-hmm. we have a nine day uh, muzzleloader season here the first seven days of season i hunted with a muzzleloader pistol mm-hmm. it I wasn't super hopeful to try to kill something. I just wanted to do something different and prolong my experience. Yeah. And I was calling bulls in left and right. I had so many close calls. I pulled the hammer back on that CVA Optima. The V2 yeah. is the pistol I have. I pulled the hammer back on that thing probably 15 times. Oh, man. I had I called in so many bulls, like all inside 50, super close chances. 
I had a giant six point at 30 yards. He just did the old, he was facing me. Mm. And then when he spun around, he never, he just switched around. I could he see never his, broadsided. He never yeah. broadsided. And with a, I mean, my effective distance with that pistol, that hard pistols are hard to shoot. Yeah. For those of you for who sure. haven't shot pistols, even a normal, like I pistol hunt with a 44 mag, mm-hmm. they're hard to shoot. Yeah. Now you make yeah. it a muzzleloader, they're really hard to shoot. Yeah, a whole nother level. Whole nother level, man. Yeah. And like that CVA Optima V2, best trigger I have honestly felt on a factory pistol and it's in a muzzleloader, which is sweet because yeah. the trigger is everything. But still, it just never felt customer uh, comfortable taking a shot. Luckily, with two days left, I was able to switch over to the, the old normal smoke pole and it smoked on the last day of season. Pretty nice five yeah. point, but... Man, just again talking about the 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 journey of being a hunter and just kind of looking for that next challenge or how to not even challenge but just how to get more experiences, how mm-hmm. to get more interactions. Yeah. And dude, that's to me what muzzleloading has the most to offer. Yeah. If you're looking to get those experiences and to get those encounters. Oh yeah. Like let's say if you're a guy from out east or the Midwest and you want to get into elk hunting, if you're not coming out during peak rut you are missing out on your best chances for the most encounters and the most yeah. experiences. And that was fun. Like the most fun. Even if you come out in peak rut and you end up not killing something. Oh, you win. You will have fun. You win. Yeah. Yeah, you win. Yeah, exactly. You're going to, like you said earlier, you're going to have more encounters during your six, six seven, nine-day muzzleloader hunt mm-hmm. than you will in 10 years of rifle hunts. Yeah. I promise you. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I totally agree. Whether or not you go home with something, who cares? Yeah. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you can, great. Cherry on top. Yeah. But if you're going out there just to kill something, in my mind, you're kind of out there for the wrong reason. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, yeah, I have like a little bit of a confession to make. So this year after archery season, after my encounter with that bull and everything, um, along these same lines, I almost gave up hunting entirely. I was like so discouraged after archery season. It'll do that to you. Because I've been training, so I've been training since like February and I've been like shooting my bow. I've been, you know, working out. I've been doing my best to like get into, you know, to learn, I learned how to bugle and chuckle and like the whole nine yards like and that honestly was one of the most fun parts of the whole thing it's yeah, like the process yeah just learning to like for me learning to call like calling is so much fun i would almost rather call than kill something you know it's just a blast um but after that season i almost gave up hunting entirely and uh i kind of those of you that listen to the podcast a lot will know nate um he's on the podcast a ton he's our general manager at muzzleloaders.com and um I told him, I was like, dude, I don't know if I'm going to hunt anymore. Like, this is brutal. Because I solo hunted. I know you solo hunt a lot, so I want to talk about that some too. But uh, I solo hunted pretty much the whole season. And I'm a pretty social guy. I like being around people. And, you know, I like sharing experiences with people. And Because when I, when I had that encounter with that bull, um, nobody was around to, like, share that experience with. And I was like, ah, it's kind of a bummer. And I talked to Nate. And what he told me is he's like, you know, I, I struggle with those same feelings sometimes like, man, I don't want to be out here. You know, I don't want to be like, you know, there's, it's totally slow. I'm sitting out. It's like 90 degrees, but then he's like, you know what? I'm on an adventure. And like that, that phrase has stuck in my mind and completely re not only revitalized my love and passion for hunting, but really changed my entire outlook on hunting. And that before I was like, I'm training to kill something. And now it's, I'm training for an adventure and you can succeed in having an adventure no matter if you kill something or not. And there's something I think in the heart of, of every person, but specifically men that yearns for some sort of adventure. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is 
changed everything about how I view hunting. And so if you guys are kind of in that same sort of limbo mode, um, I would encourage you to kind of look at life, look at not only hunting, but look at life that way. Like just in, in my travels trying to get here to Burris, I had a flight get canceled. I was delayed an entire day. You know, I spent 12 hours in an airport and it was a disaster. Like from all standpoints, it was a disaster. But if you look at life as not what happens to you, but look at life as the adventure that it is, not only will you have more happiness in life, but you'll find more fulfillment in, in everything, you know, adventure is the key. No doubt. It's the journey. Yeah. That's what it's all about. For sure. Yep. Don't make it about the crossing the finish line. Yeah. Make it about the process of getting there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And killing something, like I said, cherry on top. Yeah. And I never understood people that said that, you know, I was like, why are we out here if we're not trying to kill something? But it's like, don't get me wrong. You're out there to try to harvest something. Yeah. That's the whole point. You know, but it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't gotten there yet. You know, yeah. it's like you're there to kill something, here's but the, you're there for something more. Yeah. And here's the other thing that I've found is the second you start to let go of quote unquote, putting it on the pedestal, mm-hmm. right? You put in like, all you want to do is kill something. You want to kill something. You want to kill something. The second you let go of that and just accept the hunt for the journey and the adventure that it is, yeah, the kills are going to start coming. Like do, naturally, yeah. no it just, joke. it's weird how the floodgates just start to open in that sense. And then yeah. once you find success once, success breeds success. And next thing you know, like you just can't go wrong. Yeah. But it yeah. only happens once you are out there for the right reasons. At least that's how it was for me. I can't, I mean, honestly, I totally agree because my next hunt after that, after that experience was my muzzleloader deer hunt this past year. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was out there and... There were several times where I was like, you know, I really want to go because it's freezing. It was frigid, you know, windy, you know, 20 degrees. And, um, you know, I was like, man, this, this sucks. Like, I don't want to be out here. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to be out here. And I'm like, I'm going to put the work in um, and I'm going to have I'm going to make an adventure out of it. It's like I'm going to go somewhere I haven't been before. I'm going to do something I haven't done before. And I, you know, success came, you know, I was able to shoot a deer this year. And it's like that, those kinds of things, like, I, I totally agree. You know, there's something about that of just changing your mind. And, um, you know, I don't completely subscribe to the whole, your mindset equals reality line of thinking, but I do think that your mindset has a lot to do with, um, how you affect the things around you. You know, if you have a positive mindset, you're going to affect the things around you in a positive, more positive way that's going to lead to success. You know, yeah, you can you can look at it a bunch of different ways. If you're a, you know, believer in Christ, you can Mm -hmm. say that, you know, when you're out there and you're, you know, you're you're in it for the right reasons and then something presents itself. Right. Or you can look at it as if you're in it for the adventure and you embrace that, you'll put yourself out there longer, which Mm -hmm. increases your chances. You can yep. look at it in any way, any way you want. Yeah. And I don't really necessarily know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I just know that for, for me personally, when I, man, it was probably 10 years ago in my hunt, hunting life path, right? I've been hunting for 20 years, but when I started to realize, Hey, it's not about coming home with uh, with an animal. Yeah. It, I couldn't come home without one. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it literally, yeah. <laughs> and I just got off the most successful hunting season of my life. Mm-hmm. And again, like I, I don't care about harvesting stuff anymore. Yeah. And yeah. like the more that you seem to subscribe to that line of thinking, the mm-hmm. more it just falls into your lap. Yeah. It's the weirdest yeah. thing. Well, and like being able to take your brother this year out to Nebraska oh, yeah. and like being able to share experiences and things that you're passionate about with people that you love. You oh know? man. And I, 
I am a total believer in, you know, what do you, whatever you want to call it, karma, fate, whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I take as many animals as I shoot a year myself, which is tends to be a lot. Yeah. I take that many people out on their first hunt or mm -hmm. get them a new experience. I always try to dedicate time to like not playing guide, but yeah, not, yeah. not carrying a weapon for myself at all, just mm -hmm. calling for people. And I think that that ends up paying itself back. Um, you know, this year I started my hunting season with an arch high country archery mule deer hunt in Colorado. Mm -hmm. I scouted like crazy for that hunt and I was able to tag out on the first day. And then right after that, I had a mule deer tag down in New Mexico. I went down to New Mexico and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be as far as the unit was concerned. It turns out that a lot of those deer migrate into that unit after the snow and I was there in oh, early archery, yeah, yeah. so they weren't there yet. So all these statistics I was seeing around these huge deer being harvested there were migratory deer. They weren't mm, there. Yeah. And the little local bucks were underwhelming. Mm. So I was, you know, and, but I was seeing a ton of elk Yeah, and I was seeing elk everywhere and I was dropping pins on them. And every time I'd run into a hunter, I'd stop and ask him, you know what, what tag do you have? And then eventually the 10, 12 people in, you know, what tag do you have? He's like, I have, I have an elk tag. Mm. I was like, all right, man, what's your name? You know, well, now me and this guy have met up twice since then. We're yeah. going to be lifelong best friends, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. We're going to hunt together for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And it all started because he had the elk tag in the unit where I knew there was a bunch of elk. And the second I met the guy, I was like, let's go get you an elk. Yeah. yeah. I dropped everything. I put my bow in my camper and I didn't hunt for myself for two straight days. Never met the guy before in my life. Yeah. I called in 15 bulls for the guy mm -hmm. over the course of the next two days. And he had never shot an elk before. And I gave him the experience of his life. Yeah. And I didn't do it for any reason except for it was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And then I, after that, proceeded to have the best season of my life. Yeah. Right? I, I was able to harvest five different animals with five different weapons all on public land across the U.S., which I actually don't even know if it's ever been done before. Mm -hmm. Muzzleloader, pistol, rifle, archery. Yeah. All of it. Wow, that's Got incredible. It. Yeah, it was, it was a nuts season. And, again, I think it all... And then, yeah, I took the time to take my brother on his first Western hunt, got him a, a mule deer in Nebraska with a muzzleloader, took my sister out, got her her first nice white tail buck in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Like, I always take the time to take other people out because that's what it's about. It's about it is it is it's about you know sharing the experiences and if you can be a part of someone's first experience, they'll never forget it. Yeah, because that sticks. Yeah, well, and that like what you said with that uh, the guy in New Mexico. Um, I think that just epitomizes what we've been talking about this whole conversation is that, um, you know, a lot of people, their first gut reaction is they see another hunter in the woods. It's like, oh my gosh, what's this guy doing here? Like mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be hunting here. Um, but and if, and if you're six miles back and you work your butt off, that's, yeah, the, that's the natural that's reaction, the natural reaction. But, but don't, it's like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, you know, if you're, if you put this work in they're they're also putting the work in yep. and it's like. Just a change in mindset from a negative reaction to a positive reaction. Mm -hmm. um, not only did were you able to help this guy, which is a reward in of itself, yeah. but now you have a friend that you guys can have a mutually beneficial hunting relationship moving forward. So ultimately, it benefits you also in the long run. All be all from changing your mindset from, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy is out here. To, oh, I wonder what this guy's up to. Maybe I can yeah. help him. One hundred percent. Yep. And now we applied together in New Mexico this year. We yeah. did a, you know, joint tag down there and I'm going to go hunt blacktail with him in you know, like July or something crazy in California. Mm -hmm. Cause he, that's where he's from. And I've never hunted blacktail before. So now I yeah. have the opportunity to go hunt blacktail just because, because you were I, not, you, because you I was nice. Yeah. 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 And like, you know, it wasn't, I didn't do it for any selfish reason. I didn't know the guy from Adam. I didn't know mm -hmm. he knew where blacktail were. I didn't do it yeah. for that. I did it because the deer hunting, was lackluster. Yeah. And I love hunting elk mm -hmm. and I didn't have an elk tag. 
he did, and I wanted to help him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was that yeah. simple. It is. It's so simple. And I think that, you know, a lot of times you'll find, like, people assume the worst in others of, like, yeah. you know, I put all this hard work to get here. This person's just here. You know, it's like, well, they also put the hard work in to get there. And, you know, the worst thing that can come out of having a conversation with somebody is, uh, you know, rejection of, like, you know, don't talk to me. Like, maybe they have the same reaction that your gut reaction was of, like, why is this guy here? That's the worst thing that could happen, you know. And ultimately, that does not matter at all because the odds of you ever seeing that guy again are zero. Yep. So it's like, who cares if some guy you're never going to see again has some negative opinion about you? It's, you know, but the the potential reward of being able to help somebody is is insurmountable, you know. The risk versus reward is insane. My, my best hunting memories, like if I had to pick my top ten, eight of them, I'm not holding the weapon. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The best ones are always me taking somebody on their first, whether it's the their first hunt ever or their first like that type of hunt yeah. or that first yeah. type of experience. And those things just stick with me so much more mm-hmm. because I, I started, I had the very fortunate opportunity of starting to hunt very young. Mm-hmm. And I remember those experiences, but I was also so young they're a little fuzzy. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I was eight years old when I started hunting. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. And now that I'm older and like, I don't know, memory sticks better or whatever. Mm-hmm. Reliving that like first hunting experience through others mm-hmm. is the coolest thing. Oh yeah. I yeah. love it. There's nothing like it. I just the other day I saw on Instagram, a, um, a kid had shot his first, his first deer with a muzzle loader. And it yeah. was like just the, the sense of elation and just, um, the no- knowing that like you are, that your passion is not going to die with you. Mm-hmm. You passed your passion on to somebody else. Um, and that your passion will outlive you. you oh, know? absolutely. And there's something, there's something very real about that, you know? And it's like a piece of you is going to live on through that person. You affected that person's life in a positive way. Absolutely. And, and social media can be negative in a lot of ways, but in, in that way, it's very positive. Oh yeah. You know, if you, get somebody into hunting. Like I've gotten a lot of people into duck and goose hunting waterfall. You know, that's one of my main passions. I've gotten so many people into that. And now I get to see them just take on the addiction that I have. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I get to see them waterfall hunting all over the country. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool to see that like you helped start that. Yeah. You've given them a passion and a purpose. You've awoken it. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, man, if, if I wouldn't have shown them that what would they be doing right mm-hmm. now? Like their yeah. life would fundamentally be different. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you can automatically assume like for a positive, good change mm-hmm. because they're doing it out of choice. Right. Yeah. And that's, for sure. that's really cool feeling for sure. Yeah. Well, and one thing I kind of want to pick your brain on too, as well is cause you know, you're married and, mm-hmm. um, the sort of thing of, of hunting and life balance of, you know, their, your life would be fun. Your life in particular would be fundamentally different without hunting. You know, mm-hmm. oh yeah, and and be different, and I would say a bad way. Oh, terrible. Um, but on the converse, you know, your life would also be fundamentally different without your family. And so, what is, mm-hmm. what is the balance, um, to strike between the two? You know. Yeah. Uh man, I think my situation is a little unique in the sense that my work is also the yeah. hunting space. That's true. That's true. So it's a little, it's a little <laughs> bit different. Um, but I would say. Yeah, having the balance is really important and having a, a wife or significant other that is very much understanding mm-hmm. uh, and on the same page as you is, is key. 
my wife knows that if I don't, you know, go hunting on a regular basis, whether I show it or not, I'm a miserable human Yeah. inside. Yeah. And she knows that. And that's like really cool because mm-hmm. she respects the fact that, okay, you know, and it's not a matter like when you, when you have a wife and, and kids or whatever, when you're grown up, however you want to call it, <laughs> yeah. it's not a matter of, can I go? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a matter of like, you're going and then you do have to realize when it's like, okay, I've been home, not enough. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, you know, good head on your shoulders, that becomes very obvious right away. Yeah. And then you just have to be the big enough man to say, okay, I'm not going to go today. I'm not going today. Yeah. I need to be home. And that, that, I think that's the, the key is to always be aware of the fact that everything has an alternative mm-hmm. and you just always have to family, family first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's, you have years and years and years to hunt. And it's not so hard with big game because the seasons are shorter. Mm-hmm. But when it gets into waterfall season and it starts September 1st and ends February 15th, mm-hmm. it's a long season. Yeah. And yeah. the the thing that I think I have mastered in that sense is you start to, after you've hunted for a long time, you know what weather combinations are going to make for a good hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was young and dumb, I just hunted every day. Mm-hmm. I hunted every day, all day. That's, <laughs> yep, and I was yep. hunting hard. Yeah. And that's great. And I respect people that do that. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get good. Mm-hmm. And that's how you realize these weather patterns. Yeah. But now that I have a family and spending time with them is important, I go when I know. Mm-hmm. You, pick your, you pick your battles. When I go, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go when it is good. Yeah. And my wife knows the weather patterns now. Mm-hmm. She knows on the front range here in Colorado, if it's between September 1st and February 15th and it snows, I am going to be hunting the day before it snows. I'm going to be hunting the day it snows and I'm going to be hunting the day after it snows. Mm -hmm. And then she can have me until the next time it snows. Yeah. Yeah. But when it's snowing, I know it's on. Yeah. And I got to go. And she knows it and we're just on the same page. Mm -hmm. And it's just this like, we've never even talked about it. Mm -hmm. It's just become like this pattern, right? And on days, uh, years like this where it snowed a lot, like I've hunted quite a bit, mm-hmm. but then I've really made it a point not to hunt in between those snowstorms. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend two weeks straight with you guys, mm-hmm. you know, make sure you're nice, you're happy. Mm-hmm. We're all on the same page. And then honestly with hunting, probably the best thing is, and this goes for all hunters, at least this is one thing I've noticed. And we, me and my wife have talked about this. It's kind of funny. Yeah. She'll be like, you know, end of, uh, end of hunting season. She's like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready for you to be home more, mm. right? I'm like, me too. And then spring, summer, I spend the whole time with my family. Mm-hmm. I don't like, ha- I don't have like, I don't race cars. Yeah. I don't have any other hobbies. Mm-hmm. My hobby is hunting. Mm-hmm. Sure, I do every type of hunting that exists. But from spring, I have a little turkey hunting in spring. All summer until fall, I spend every waking moment with my family. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing is I'm, not necessarily building the brownie points. Like that's an easy way to talk about it. Yeah. But what I'm doing is I'm investing my time with them. Mm-hmm. And then it gets to the point. It's like perfect timing. I love it. Yeah. It gets to September 1st and my wife is so sick of me. She is. <laughs> she's like, she's like, I can't wait for hunting season to start. <laughs> like just go away, go disappear into the mountains. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. it's perfect. I go disappear into the mountains. And then by February 15th, when hunting season's wrapping up, she's like, I can't wait to spend more time with you. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, for us at least, it's this like healthy cycle mm-hmm. of time of year, 
slash days within the week yeah. where we're getting quality time together, mm-hmm. but not like too much. Yeah. Cause there is yeah. such a thing with everybody and their significant others. When you spend too much time together, you're like, all right. Yeah. I totally agree. <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's spread this out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that, um, I think it's nuanced. I think every, every couple you'll find your own stride. I just think it's being conscious of the needs of your significant other, you yeah. know? Um, because, and without them, you're nothing, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you could spend all, I mean, if, you know, if your wife leaves you, you could spend all the time you want in the woods, but it, I mean, how fulfilling is that going to be? I'd know? be miserable. You'd be miserable. Yeah. Exactly. And that's kind of the whole point of this is like your life without hunting would be miserable, but also your life without your family is miserable. Mm-hmm. And so finding a way to like be sensitive to your, to your family's needs. And I think for like, for my, for my wife in particular, it's knowing what's important to her and then prioritizing what's important to her. You know, mm-hmm. and it's like making sure that it's like, you know, like the other day I wanted to do some coyote hunting. Um, but my wife had something going on that required me to not go coyote hunting and she didn't ask me to not hunt. Mm-hmm. I just told, you know, and I told her I was going to be there and have a buddy with me to help. And I, you know, wasn't cause I was going to try and do a morning hunt, but I was like, ah, there's not enough time. I'm not going to be able to get it done. And, um, you know, she didn't ask me to not go hunting. She didn't do any of that, but because I prioritized her needs above my coyote hunt, you know, and it was, it was a money day too. You know, it was like one of those days you're just like, yep. Oh man, this is the day. Um, but, uh, that, that really meant a lot to her because she knows how much that meant to me, you know, yep. and, um, finding ways like that, that you can really cherish your significant other, um, is, is just, it's key into the whole process, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, make the most out of every situation too. Like it's for my wife, it's just something simple. It doesn't, you know, she doesn't, she's not like super into one thing. Mm -hmm. She likes to go on walks and hike. Yeah. Like I'll do that all summer long. Mm -hmm. Heck I'll even throw a pack on with some weight in it while I'm at it Mm -hmm. because I'm out there. Yeah. Might as well be working the legs. Yeah. She's happy. I'm happy. Kids happy. Happy wife, happy life, man. That's exactly right. It's that simple. Yeah. 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 And I mean, some people take a different approach too. I have friends who, you know, they've gotten their wife into hunting mm-hmm. and now they've taken it on and like, that's how they spend time together. And that's yeah. great. My wife, not a huge hunter. Like mm-hmm. I have, she's fallen in love with turkey hunting, which is cool. So yeah. we can spend the spring together, turkey hunting a little bit. And that's great. Um, so I, I, like you said, it's nuanced. It depends. Mm-hmm. There's a million ways to skin that cat. Oh, for sure. But the yeah. most important thing is like you said, just finding a system or a rhythm mm-hmm. that works for both of you and always keeping their best interests in mind. And yeah. And being self-aware, like yeah. understand, like being able to recognize when you're out of balance, yeah. you know? And, and normally your wife will tell you. Yeah. If yep. it starts to get to the, my, my wife has never like straight up told me, I don't want you to go hunting. Mm-hmm. But the day that she even mentions it, I know it's serious. Yeah. Like, yeah. When she starts, wow, when yeah. she even starts to hint at it, I'm like, yeah, I've been hunting too much. Yeah. I need to take a step back. Yeah. <laughs> I need yeah, to yeah. slow, I need to yeah. slow down right now. No joke. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, one thing that's kind of fun at like that my wife enjoys. And I think that a lot of guys that really want to get their wives into hunting do, uh, poorly is expecting your wife to hunt on the level that you want to hunt. Yep. And it's like yeah. for, for my wife, what she, she enjoys hunting. Like this year she shot a cow elk um, nice. and, uh, we had a ton of fun. Like her, her family came out. We all went out to her grandpa's ranch and we camped and, you know, hunted 
casually and, you know, we were able to kill a cow and it was just like, it was not the level of intensity that I would seek out on my own, but it was what she enjoyed. And because she was having fun and everyone else was having fun, I was having a good time, you know? And it's like being able to, to understand that and also being willing to understand that not everybody's wife's, your wife might not be into it at all. And that's totally fine. And, um, and good for you for being able to flip that switch. Yeah. Because yeah. most people, they get so absorbed into what they're in it for. Mm-hmm. It's hard for them to flip that switch into seeing why somebody else would be into it for a different reason. Yeah. And and totally. I mean, my wife, even with turkeys, is the same way. She loves hunting turkeys. She doesn't like waking up early. Mm-hmm. She doesn't like hunting in the cold. Yeah. And I don't blame her. Yeah, exactly. Like, and yep, that's fine. Yep. I have to realize that when I'm going on a turkey hunt with her. Yeah. There's certain things that are, you're not going to be able to do. Yeah. You know? I can't get up at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. and go find out where they're roosted and be underneath the roost tree for an hour. Yeah. And I, if it's cold, like, we'll just sleep in and wait till it warms up. Yeah. And then yep. she's going to be happy. We're still going to kill a turkey. Mm-hmm. You know yeah, what I mean? It's not that like, hard. <laughs> it's, yeah, like, it's still going to be fine. Yeah. But, like, you know, yeah, you, you just, like, it's you just said, not the level of intensity that, that you would seek out on your own. It's just a different, they're, we talked about experiences earlier. They're yeah. just looking for a different experience. Yeah. And you just have mm-hmm. to accept that. And then once you accept that and you're in it for the same experience, everybody's getting what they're wanting. Mm-hmm. You're getting the experience that you wanted because it's the experience that they wanted. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that there's, there's something, something real about the pleasure from selflessness like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, putting someone else's needs above your own. And I totally thought, like, when I got my wife into turkey hunting, I thought it was the gateway drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the plan. Yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah. Like, turkey hunting, easy, low-hanging fruit, mm-hmm. get her into hunting. That was, like, six years ago. Yeah. No interest. Yeah. Like, she loves, like, duck and goose hunting, like, dove hunting. She'll do that. Again, mm-hmm. she wants to sleep in and make sure it's a warm day. Yeah. And that's great. Yep. But, like, no, like, interest in mammal hunting yet. I mm-hmm. think she's starting to kind of warm up to it. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Like, I'm not going to push it. I Honestly, I kind of like the time to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about solo hunting. Like, that's the reason I solo hunt is it's my me time. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, the tough thing, I don't like solo hunting because I'm a social guy and I like hunting with people. I love being with people and sharing experiences. But the hardest thing is finding somebody that is on the same level as you. Or at least in it for the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Maybe maybe that's a better way of saying it. Because it's like... Um, cause oftentimes you'll find somebody that they, they're looking for something different out of their hunt. And, um, that, that's not a good, that's just a, that's fine. They can try and find something, but it's like, if you're going to try and hunt with somebody, you guys have to be aligned in your goals. Otherwise your, your friendship when it, with regard to hunting is not going to last very long Yeah, because you're going to be going two different directions. Yeah. You know? And so I think there's definitely real benefit to solo hunting. And I, I do enjoy it, uh, to a degree because there is something really rewarding about putting the work in by yourself, having success by yourself. And, you know, that is a rewarding experience, but the, in my opinion, the experience is always better when it's shared with someone else. Yeah, I, I do like, and I have done a, a few like Western backcountry style hunts with somebody else. Mm-hmm. They've all been in the situation where I'm trying to take them. Yeah. In that case, I am on their experience path. Mm-hmm. I've recognized what experience they want. Mm-hmm. And then I have made that my goal for an experience. Yeah. And that helps a lot. I have never, never been on a Western hunt where 
I am hunting with another person that also has a tag mm -hmm. and we are after something. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I would, I would love to try it out. I think again, you'd have to be very aligned yeah. and you have to be willing to like kind of sacrifice for each other. And that's maybe part of the experience, Yeah, you know, but for me, my favorite thing about, about solo hunting, yeah, pushing my limits is great. Having my me time is great, but I am always the most effective when I'm alone mm -hmm. every single time. It's like, I can't go wrong if I go hunt by myself. Really? Yeah. And mm -hmm. I honestly think, I don't think that that is because I'm like this almighty great hunter. That's not what I'm saying. I just have found that when I hunt by myself, I act on my own instinct mm -hmm. automatically. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've been hunting with somebody else, you always have that moment where you hear that bugle and you look at each other and you freeze mm -hmm. and you start talking. What, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. We want to go left. You want to go uphill. You want to mm -hmm. go downhill. Yeah. Wind's yeah. doing this. You start talking. Wasted time. Mm -hmm. When I'm by myself, yeah. there is not even the moment where I look over at somebody for even approval on what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm going. Yeah. Like, and I'm just, to me, that freedom of acting it's the most primitive thing I've ever experienced in my life. That's what I love about hunting mm -hmm. is it pulls me back into my own instinct, my own, my, the nature, the instinct of your ancestors like that. It's built inside you. Yeah. You can't even explain why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're just acting. You're literally not even thinking. Yeah. yeah. You just, you are acting. You, I was stalking on a mule, mule deer this year after watching the thing for three straight weeks mm -hmm. and I just felt the wind switch and hit my neck. I didn't even have to think about it. Yeah. I just yeah. sat down and I waited three hours for the wind to switch to get right. Mm -hmm. And then as I started stalking, I, I was walking and the wind was blowing and I was noticing I had a lot of background noise mm -hmm. and then the wind stopped and I just stopped. Yeah. The wind started and I started walking again. Like I wasn't thinking in my brain move when the wind moves. Mm -hmm. I was just, my body was acting with the wind. Yeah. And that sounds so weird, mm -hmm. but like I thought about it after the hunt, I reflected on it and I was like, that was, I have goosebumps right now just talking about it. Yeah. Like my body was literally, that was just my instinct. Mm -hmm. My instinct was acting. Yeah. And I only get that when I solo hunt. Oh, I have sure. never yeah. experienced that hunting with anybody else. Yeah. Because again, you always have that like, you know, you start to have conversation and, yeah. and doubt. Mm -hmm. And I hate the doubt. Mm -hmm. I like, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. The doubt is no good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or can you, I think your jacket might be rubbing on that thing a little bit. Um, Better. Oh, maybe not. Maybe not. I don't know. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Microphone issues always come up in podcasts, it seems. But I think I totally agree. I think that um, when I when you hunt alone, also when you just spend time alone, like seriously alone. Like an extended period yeah, of time. <laughs> you start, your mind starts to change. Oh, no doubt. And it's like you start talking to yourself and you start mm -hmm. to become, uh, it's, it's hard to describe for people who haven't spent, you know, a lot for, and I think for other people, like some people, it happens sooner than others. Like, mm -hmm. because I'm an extrovert, it happens for me pretty quickly. If I go a couple hours, you know, maybe a day without seeing or talking to anybody, mm -hmm. I start to kind of lose it a little bit. And it's kind of like, you start kind of thinking to yourself and you're yeah. talking to yourself and you're like, okay, what are, what are we going to do? It's like, wait, I'm alone. I, was like, yeah. <laughs> I can't refer to myself this way. You know, so it's, you, you kind of go crazy a little bit, but once that settles down, um, you become very, uh, in tune with your surroundings, Yeah, you know, because it's like, it's just you, you don't have to concern yourself with what anybody else's thinks about a situation. And yeah. what you said about doubt acting it, like if you don't know what to do, do something. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that can happen is you'll make a mistake and you'll learn not to do it that way next time. No doubt. But if you don't do anything, not only are you not going to be successful, but you're also not going to learn anything. Yep. And so, um, 
I mean, that's crucial. Yeah, I think that's really good, like, internal reflection. You know, for me, I always try to do, like, roughly a nine-day backpack hunt by myself every year. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, it's like that three-day mark. Yeah. Where you're like, yeah, I'm alone. I haven't talked in three days. Because, mm-hmm. like, when you talk to yourself, it's internal. Yeah. You're not like, hey, Logan, are you okay? Like, not yeah. out loud. Yeah. You start to realize, like, wow, other than making an elk bugle on a diaphragm, I haven't created sound in three days. I know. And you're it's like, like you'll, you'll, like, do a voice check. Like, can yeah. I still talk? Yeah. Okay. All right. My voice still works. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm then still a person. I still you, exist. And you'll it's go like, quiet again. And then, yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, the limit on, on that whole deal is the dehydrated food starts to take over after a while. Yeah. But, yeah, man. And you're right. Uh, the coolest thing I think not a lot of humans experience, especially people that don't backcountry hunt or hunt alone is your senses running how they would naturally run if you didn't live in a chaotic you know, city modern, world. city, modern world. Yeah. And for me, that's like day five. Mm-hmm. My ears are, when you first go into the woods, day two, you know, you get the old squirrel. Is that an elk? Mm. You know, day five, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Day five in, when you're by yourself, you haven't talked to anybody and you've just been out there. And the, the only, pl- the only noise you've heard is either been animals or a plane flying over mm-hmm. the occasional plane. <laughs> yeah. Like when you hear a rustle, you know, it's a squirrel instantly. You're not like, is that an elk? Yeah. You know, yeah. you're so tuned in. It's mm-hmm. just not even funny. And most people will never understand that feeling. Yeah. They'll never, they'll never experience it. They'll never know it. They chase comfort, you know, they oh, chase yeah. air conditioning, you know, and it's, and it's, it's hard to argue with that because like, it is comfortable. It's easy. But like I was saying, I was talking to the filming guys today, suffering brings context to life. Oh yeah. Without suffering, life would suck. And I think there is a degree of suffering that is good for people to endure. And I think there's a degree of suffering that's very bad. I think that there's a lot of things that you can go through in life that are horrible that nobody should ever have to go through. But there is a degree of suffering that every human being should endure on a regular basis and seek out. Mm-hmm. And for for me, that's hunting. Of like, when you go out hunting, it's there's a lot of aspects of hunting that aren't fun. It's not like fun the whole time <laughs> yeah like literally all of hunting it's like yeah. it's not fun but it's it's restorative that's you it. know that's it's the like word man it's just like you can't you can't really put your finger on what it is but it's like it it changes part of who you are mm-hmm. because like you said how your senses are supposed to act you know it's like um whether you believe in god or not like i you know those of you who listen to the podcast know that we're, we're a christian company and everything and I believe that God created us in an environment that, that isn't this environment. Like we were created in a very natural environment and we have a lot of synthetic things around us. We grow up, we're in a synthetic environment. My whole life, I was born in 1999, has been in a synthetic environment, you know, plastic cars and, you know, microwavable food and like all this kind of stuff. Whereas if you go back 200 years, the environment was very much not synthetic. You know, it's like you're, you know, especially if you in the West, you know, you're living on the land, you know, and, um, there's something about that that is very healthy for human beings to endure and seek out. Yeah. We weren't meant to spend eight hours a day staring at a screen. No, no, that's not what our bodies were designed to do. And yeah. I mean, evolution, it's like de-evolution. Now people's bodies are changing, starting to be more humpback because they're looking mm-hmm. down at screens and yeah, it's, uh, we've come a long way from where we were, you know, built and created to be. 
and it is cool to again hit that reset button mm. restore to at least get a taste of what we were meant to do or design mm. to do and design how we are designed to live and be and yeah i mean it, it also everything's relative so you come back into this very like comfortable life and it makes you that much more appreciative yeah like mm-hmm. the ability to you know you, you come back after eating only dehydrated meals and you know packing out an animal and you process it and you know you you're, context. You're, you're high in life and then you go sit down on your couch and you're like oh yeah a couch mm-hmm. cushions yeah yep oh man and like <laughs> somebody who doesn't have the alternative mm-hmm never fully appreciates the couch. Yeah. If you always sat on that couch, yeah. the couch is the norm. They've never had to sit on rocks or, you know, on, yeah. on their butt glassing and yeah. sleeping in a tent on the ground. And you go lay down on your mattress for the first time in nine days and you're like, mm-hmm. wow, we really have it good. Well, that's, I, I kind of want to elaborate on what I said earlier about con mm-hmm. contrast. Um, you know, if you think about art, mm-hmm. you think about, art has all sorts of different colors and they're all contrasting with each other to create an image that is beautiful and awesome. You know, if you had a, just a blank white canvas or a black canvas or a red canvas or whatever with no contrast, it'd be meaningless. It's just a red or white, whatever canvas, you know, but what that sort of experience does in life is that it, um, it gives you that contrast and gives life meaning of like, you can go sit on your couch and it's whatever. It's kind of meaningless. But after five days of sitting on a rock and you come home and sit on your couch, it's like, Oh, there's so much meaning to this couch, you know? Um, and I don't think that everybody was designed to hunt. And like you said, if everybody hunted, it wouldn't be sustainable. Um, but I do think that whether it's hunting or whatever medium you choose, you should seek out some form of healthy discomfort um, putting in, and, and that's just like, I think general life advice. So like you should try to put yourself outside of your comfort zone, you know? Yeah. And some people do that through different means too. Some people run marathons. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I'm not made like to run a marathon. Yeah, that's, I could not run a marathon. Whatever, but, whatever your thing is, some people are yeah. doing like ice baths now or whatever, but yeah. I think you're right, man. Seek, seek some form of discomfort. Anything, you know, worth doing is going to be a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, for so. sure. Well, do you have anything else to add? Uh, we've been here for, for an hour and I don't want to, you know, it's, it's like 1030 at night. So <laughs> yeah, man, we just got off on a tangent. I know, man. I don't even know if we covered everything we, we wanted to cover, but yeah, yeah, we covered the good stuff. The good stuff. The stuff <laughs> we, we really we, we got, to talk about. We got into some good stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you coming out. It was a lot of fun shooting those videos with you. For sure. Um, I'm really excited to see how they, how they turn out. Yeah. And I think, you know, the videos that we did do are going to provide a lot of really good information to people, mm-hmm. both people just looking to get into muzzleloader and muzzleloader hunting, but all the way up to people who have been doing it and are kind of looking to take the, the next step and what they're looking to, to get into as far as equipment. So, yeah, I totally agree. If you guys, uh, you know, if you guys are a fan of, of our content on our YouTube channel, you'll definitely want to check out the videos that we did today. Um, you know, that we had. They had a professional crew out. We were able to shoot ranges that we don't have access to on our channel. And so, um, yeah, definitely really good stuff. And I'm excited. I know that not all of it is going to be available right away. Uh, it's going to be kind of spread out throughout the year. But just keep an eye on the Burris YouTube channel for that muzzleloader content. And, uh, Logan, I do really appreciate you having me out here. Thanks for being on the podcast. 
Yeah. Uh, I said 20 minutes and it had been an hour. So <laughs> hey, we, we had fun. That's yeah, a good sign. Exactly. Exactly. You can't put restraints on a conversation. So that's right. Um, yeah, you guys, uh, if you're listening on audio or watching on YouTube, be sure to, you know, comment, uh, subscribe. If you are listening just on the audio platform, be sure to leave a review. Um, cause we want to get this content into the hands of people that are really going to benefit from it. And, uh, uh, we'll plan to see you guys on the next episode of the muzzleloaders podcast. <laughs>